Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles or your Bible apps, please open to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at, um, in particular, verse 9. But over the next six weeks, uh, we are going, as Paige uh, mentioned, we are going to be going through a series on the Lord's Prayer. And as Pastor Paul and I thought about 2022, and we spent some time thinking and praying about, okay, what are particular burdens that we have? What are ways that we want to grow as a church? One of the primary ones is prayer. We want to grow as a church in prayer. That's one of the reasons we're bringing back First Monday Prayer and kind of beefing that up a little bit. And so I encourage you tomorrow night, join us for, uh, from 7 to 8 uh, at First Baptist in Bellevue. We're going to gather as a church to spend some time together praying and, and really starting our year with a posture of prayer, a posture of abiding in Christ. Well, we need prayer because we recognize nothing gets done without prayer. We could have the best philosophy of, of ministry, we could have the best strategies, we could have all the resources of any megachurch, but without prayer, we accomplish nothing, at least nothing of kingdom value, nothing that's going to last on that final day when Jesus judges all things. We need prayer. And what our heart for you as pastors is that everything that you are this year in 2022 flows from and comes from deep communion with the Lord. And our hope is, is that everything that we are as a church, everything that we do this year, everything about our mission as First City Church comes because we as a community are communing with the Lord in prayer. We need prayer. And prayer is this kind of wonderful, complex, sometimes frustrating, sometimes mysterious, beautiful practice and experience. I mean, depending on who you talk to, prayer is either the power behind all things or not powerful enough. It is nothing short than communing with God. It is, it is experiencing the presence of God. Yet at the same time, if you ask most Christians how their prayer life is going, you want to see a Christian flinch, ask them how their prayer life is. I mean, we would all, those of us who belong to Christ, we would say, yes, prayer is absolutely necessary and it's something I probably don't do enough. If I were to grab you after the service, and I promise I'm not going to do this, but if I were to grab you after the service and say, hey, how's your prayer life going? How would you feel? Not, not, not how would you answer, because I know how we do. I've given this answer plenty where you kind of admit that you're not praying enough, but if you were really honest, you realize you probably don't pray much at all. But how would you feel inside? Like, what, what would that question provoke? Guilt? Disappointment? Maybe a sense of panic? Maybe you'll start thinking inside, all right, Chris, you got me. Congratulations, you've exposed him, a complete failure as a Christian. You know, that, that angst that we feel inside when we think about prayer, when we think about not doing it enough, I want you to get in tune with that angst. I want you to be honest with that angst. I want us as a church to be honest with that as we spend the next six weeks going through the Lord's Prayer. Because in the midst of that angst, in the midst of that panic, in the midst of that disappointment and doubt, Jesus steps in and he says this, let me teach you how to pray. The, the Lord's grace meets us and he comes and he says, let me teach you how to pray. And the Lord's Prayer is this wonderful instruction on prayer. 
It's the most well-known prayer in all the Bible. Even if you don't profess faith in Christ, you're probably familiar with it. You've probably heard it. You've probably seen it written down somewhere. We're familiar with this prayer. And in this prayer, we learn the person of prayer and the priority of prayer. We learn a pattern to pray, of the things that we are to pray for. In the Lord's Prayer, we are drawn into communion with God, but we're also shaped. We're shaped as disciples of Jesus. If you pray the Lord's Prayer and you really mean it, you will be shaped as a disciple of Jesus with your heart oriented towards the kingdom of God. This is what the Lord's Prayer does for us and to us. And consider this incredible good news for us. I mean, if you find yourself struggling in your prayer life, if you, if you really are honest and it's like, I, yeah, the angst, the disappointment, the despair, but, but I know that I, I need to pray more and I'd like to pray more. Well, here's the good news. Jesus teaches you how to pray. Jesus himself teaches you how to pray. He, he steps into that and he says, here it is. Here is how you are to pray. And the first thing that Jesus teaches us, the very first thing he teaches us is who we pray to where we go to in prayer. And what does he say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Theologian J.I. Packer says this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For you who are in Christ, how does the thought that God is your father affect you? How much do you make of that truth and that reality? How much do you make of the thought that you are a child of God? Does that drive your worship? Does that affect your worship? Does that affect your mind and your heart? Does it affect the way you pray at all? Packer really cuts to the chase because he says, if you don't understand that God is your father, then you don't understand Christianity at all. And here's what's going to happen. Your worship is going to be deficient. Your prayer is going to be deficient. And if not outright, muted. Strong words from Packer. Strong words. And yet... When Jesus teaches us how to pray, what's the first thing he tells us? Pray like this, our Father. When Jesus talks about communing with God, knowing God, when he brings us into that and he says, hey, here's how it is done, here's what you need to know, what does he tell us? God is our Father. Could it be, could it be that the reason we struggle with prayer so is because we do not see God as our Father? We miss this. And so this morning, I want God's word and his spirit to shape us, to reorient our minds and our hearts, to understand who God truly is. And here's the main point for us this morning. The God we pray to is our heavenly father who rescues. The God we pray to is our heavenly father who rescues. And so may God, by his word and by his spirit, reorient us this morning that we would see God rightly. And in seeing God rightly, It would give fresh life and fresh hope to our prayers. And and I want to start here. To say that God is Father means that God is a person. Now that may be like stating the obvious, so yeah, Captain Obvious. 
But this is such an important point that I think sometimes we miss and we overlook. Because the way you and I can relate to God is more as maybe this impersonal force or maybe an idea or a concept rather than a person. Now, we'd never say that. We'd never say, no, I believe God is just some impersonal force like in Star Wars. We would never outright say that, but that's how we relate to him. Impersonal, distant, as if he's just kind of way over there, not someone that we can be up close and personal with and know. You know, we we do this with scripture too. Like the way that we study and engage scripture can be more about intellectual knowledge than actually knowing God. So, So we study the word to know about God rather than to know him, to be able to explain him rather than experience him. But friends, this is not what scripture, this is not what God's word tells us is how we are to relate to and commune with God. No, God is a person and when we miss this, when we live there, We miss out on much. Uh, Theologian A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, writes this, personality and fatherhood carry with them the idea of the possibility of personal acquaintance. But for millions of Christians, nevertheless, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christians. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle Over and against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible, walking among the trees of the garden and breathing fragrance over every scene. Always a living person is present, speaking, pleading, loving, working, and manifesting himself wherever, whenever, and wherever his people have the receptivity necessary to receive. Friends, God's word declares over and over and over again, he's a person. He can be known. And he has revealed himself so that you can know him. He has purpose that you would know him. God is a person and we miss out on so much grace and peace and love and hope and comfort when we don't live there. When we treat God like an ideal rather than a person. If we treat prayer as if God were just some distant deity or some cold authority that we hope grants requests, is it no wonder that we're prayerless? So friends, let me ask you this morning, if God's word makes it clear that we can know him and experience, why is it that we're so afraid to relate to God personally? Why is it that we're so quick to treat him as an ideal or principle rather than a person? Why is it that we're afraid to get up close? Now, for some of you, it may be that your understanding of God in the Bible is off. Maybe you haven't been taught and don't have the knowledge of God as Father because someone hasn't taught you the Scriptures, you don't know the Scriptures well, so you just need some correction in your understanding and truth to shape your mind. And if that's where you are, that's okay. God's Word comes to you and meets you right there to show you who God is. But for many others, oh, you know that. You know the Lord's Prayer. You know all the other passages that refer to God as Father and yet still relate to him as if he is an idea or principle. Why? Why? Why do we do this? Why are we afraid to get up close and personal with God? Why are we afraid to open up the deepest parts of our hearts? The part 
where the pain and the hurts and the hidden desires live? Why are we afraid to get vulnerable and open those things up? Look, God knows they're there, and you know he knows they're there. But yet, we back off. In some ways, we feel like it's safer if God's that distant authority way over there rather than up close and personal and near. Why, friends? Why are we so willing to miss out on peace and comfort and joy and grace of knowing God? God is not just, not just a person in the generic sense. He's not an ambiguous person that we can sort of just define on our own and fill out that definition as we see fit. No, God has defined himself, has revealed himself, not only as a person, but as a father. As Jesus tells us, God is a father. And we need to understand, this isn't just metaphor. God isn't just grabbing at some human metaphor in order for us to try to better understand who he is and kind of how he relates. No, God isn't just a, like a father. No, God is the father. He is the father by which all fatherhood is defined. You see, within the triune God, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and don't worry, I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity this morning because that would take a long time. But within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father has eternally been the Father, just as God the Son has been eternally been the Son. Father and Son, eternally in relationship with one another and in relationship with the Spirit. So for God to say, I am Father, he is declaring, this is who I've always been. From eternity past, I have been the Father. Not metaphor, but speaking about who God is. Who God is. And so as it relates to us, God is Father first in, in a general sense. Now, he's the creator. We all have our origin from him. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul praises the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then later in Ephesians 4, 4, 6, he declares that there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And so as the creator of all people, as the creator of all things, God is our Father. He is our source. We're, we come from him. He's the rightful authority and head over all people and all creation. But it goes further than this. There's a more specific, a more particular way in which God is Father. And that speaks to the particular fatherly relationship he has with his redeemed people. In fact, God's redeeming and rescuing love is actually an expression of his fatherhood. Like, how does God reveal that he is a father? How does he express that fatherhood in rescuing and redeeming his people? And so, if you're familiar with scripture and this idea of the fatherhood of God, you know in the Old Testament, that, it's not a theme that is, the volume is turned up on. We don't see the fatherhood of God as prominent in the Old Testament. We see it all over the place in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament, but it's there. And, and where it is in the Old Testament is actually planting the seeds that are going to come to full fruition in Jesus Christ. And so the first place we see God talked about as father is in Exodus 4. And when God first commands Moses to go to Pharaoh, this is the message he gives Moses to speak. And you will say to Pharaoh, 
This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Friends, when God declares that he is a father, what's the contest? Rescuing and redeeming his people. Rescuing and redeeming his son. God calls Israel his son. He is their father, not because of anything they've done. Not because they're awesome. No, they were the furthest thing from awesome. But because he set his love on them to rescue and redeem them. God expresses his fatherhood by rescuing and redeeming a people. His fatherly love redeems and rescues. It turns slaves into sons. The fatherhood of God expresses God's heart to rescue and redeem a people. The God we pray to is our heavenly father who rescues. And this is where we need to be honest and acknowledge we need rescue. I mean, make no mistake We need rescue. Maybe not exactly like Israel needed rescue, but we need rescue. You see, though that God is the father of all, authority over all, he is the righteous and righteous ruler of all, we've rebelled against him. We've rebelled against his fatherly love and his fatherly care. We've turned from him to sin and selfishness and pride, and we've decided we're going to do this without you, God. We don't need you. Yeah, that's great, you're a father, but I got this. We have rebelled, and in our rebellion, we've become enslaved to our sin. We've become enslaved to our dysfunction. We've become enslaved to our fear. We have wrecked and ruined this good world, and we are wrecking and ruining ourselves and others. And for all of our education, for all of our technology, for all of our politics, we can't fix anything. Because here's the, the, the truth. The problem is never the solution, and we're the problem. Like you're never going to fix a problem with the problem. <laughs> and we're the problem. Our sin and our rebellion are the problem, and we're enslaved to it. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We need a father to come and rescue us. We need redemption. We need rescue. And in this, hear the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the same fatherly love, and power and grace that turned the slaves, slaves in Egypt into sons and set them free to worship their father is the same love and same power and same grace that sent Jesus Christ into this world to turn slaves into sons so that we could worship the father. Jesus Christ, who is the true son, stepped into our sin-cursed world and he willingly laid down his life to pay for our sin, to take the punishment our sin deserved. And why did he do that? Yes, so that we could be forgiven and set free. But don't miss this. That wasn't the end. That wasn't the end. That's a means to an end. Why did Jesus come? Why did he die so we could be forgiven and set free from our sins so he could bring us to the Father? So that we could know the Father, so we could be in relationship with the Father. Jesus says in John 6, 38 through 40, that he came to do the will of the Father. And here is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then what Jesus says in John 14, 23, he says, if you believe in me, here's the promise, that I and my Father will come and make our home with you. 
If you believe in me, you turn from your sin and you follow me. I'm going to come and my father's going to come and we're going to set up shop in you, in your life. Communion, knowing God, experiencing God, living within God's presence and with God's presence. The father comes to you and you become his child. And the rest of the New Testament declares this all over the place, over and over and over again. Galatians 3.26 says this, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And then later in 4, 6, and 7 it declares, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Because we are sons, we can declare, Father, you are my father, you are my dad. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. There it is again. Romans 8, 15 through 16 says much the same thing. If you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, instead you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. What is the Spirit's work in your life to tell you, hey, he's your father, he's your dad. That the Spirit confirms that and strengthens us in that. The Spirit is pointing to the Father, and then as 1 John 3, 1 explodes in praise and says, see what manner of love the Father has for us, that we would be children of God. And so we are. John's like, let me repeat that in case you missed it the first time. We're children of God, sons and daughters. Friend, God has sent Jesus into the world. God has come on a great rescue mission so that you could know him. The Father in love rescues you so that you can know him, so that you can be forgiven and set free, yes, but so you can know him as Father. Friends, Christianity, as Thomas Smale says, is a father movement. It's a father movement. It turns slaves into sons. It turns rebellious sinners into sons and daughters of God. It turns children of wrath into children of promise. You know, we make much of Jesus around here, which is right and good. We should. We're never going to stop doing that. But, but here's what can inadvertently happen sometimes. We can make so much of Jesus that sometimes we forget about the Father. And we don't talk about the Father as much. And the Father can kind of feel distant. I mean, Jesus is close and comfortable. We're familiar with him. We'll commune with Jesus, but the Father, it feels a little weird to do that. But guess what, friends? You know what the Father is like? Jesus. Or to put it better, as Jesus said, you know who I'm like? The Father. This is what Jesus says in John 5, 19. Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. The love and the grace of Jesus, that's the love and the grace of the father. The rescue and the redemption and the freedom that comes from Jesus, that comes from the father. You want to know who the father, what the father is like? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus came to show you the father to reveal the Father, to bring you into relationship with the Father so that you can know him. Christianity, friends, the gospel is a father movement. The God we pray to is our heavenly Father who rescues. 
And when we get a hold of this, like when we know this, when this is what's shaping our hearts and our minds, oh, there is a life and hope and comfort and confidence that's breathed into us. And we find that in prayer. Like when we get a hold that God is our father and he's a father who rescues and redeems and he loves us, it changes things. It changes things. You know, for a child to know that their father will rescue them, that their father is strong enough, powerful enough, faithful enough to rescue them when they are in trouble, it brings an incredible amount of confidence and comfort. So one of my favorite action movies in the 80s is the movie Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It says a lot about me, but hey, I love action movies. And if you've never seen the movie, don't bother to go watch it because it's really not worth seeing. But here's the plot. Terrorists kidnap Arnold's daughter and he goes and rescues her. And you guarantee he rescues her because Arnold always wins. Long before Liam Neeson in the Taken movies, Arnold was the strong dad who went and rescued his daughter. But here's what's interesting about the movie. His daughter, Jenny, while she is scared because she's been kidnapped by terrorists, is pretty defiant towards him. The whole time, she's like, my dad's going to come get me. My dad is going to come and rescue me. She is confident that her dad is powerful enough, strong enough, and faithful enough to come get her, and it brings her comfort even in the midst of being kidnapped by terrorists. You see, when we know our God is strong and faithful and he's a father that comes to rescue, that brings comfort and that brings confidence to us. Oh, what an incredible promise. What an incredible joy to know that our God is a heavenly father who rescues. And look, when we get that, when we live that, When we pray the Lord's Prayer and we declare our Father, our prayers start getting real. (laughs) Like really real. (laughs) Like the kind of prayers where we open up the deep, dark recesses of our heart and we start letting God do his work. We start being honest about that stuff. We start confessing and pouring it out in prayer and the Spirit and the Father start to do work When we take hold of these promises, we're transformed. When we take hold of this truth, it changes our prayer life. And we get up close and personal with God. He's no longer some distant deity, some cold authority way over there. No, he's a father who's up close, who loves, and his power, and his comfort, and his grace, and his mercy change us. Friends, it's no small thing to call God Father. It's no small thing that he has revealed himself to us as our Father. When we pray our Father, we begin exercising faith. We begin putting confidence in our God who rescues. And so then, so let me ask again, why is this so hard? What keeps you from doing this? Why is it so hard to let God near or for you to get near? Why is it so hard to be personal with God, to be vulnerable and open, to be regular in prayer? Look, on one level, I venture to guess this much. On one level, look, it's nothing more complicated than we're just self-sufficient. We're self-sufficient. 
Like, like we think we can handle things on our own. We think we can fix our own problems. We can deal with our issues. That we're strong enough. We're smart enough. We have enough resources. And so there's a pride. A lot of times we're prayerless because we're prideful and we're self-sufficient. And we need to come to grips with that. We need to repent of that. We need to deal with that and be honest about that. But I think for some of us, maybe many, maybe most of us, there's another layer to this. You see, when we start talking about God as Father, it starts stirring in us that recognition that our relationship with our earthly father, not so good. Complicated, painful, broken, disappointing, damaged, fill in the blank. And it is so easy, it is so easy to import the way we view our heavenly father with how we view our earthly father. And so if our relationship with our earthly father has been broken, damaged, if there's disappointment, if there's pain there, then it can be hard to relate to God as father. And when that happens, it happens, it messes with us. Look, here's what sociologists of every stripe, of every color, secular Christian, will tell you. That the most important relationship in solidifying a child's identity is the father. Like, this doesn't mean that mothers aren't important. Mothers, you're indispensable, absolutely necessary as well. But the way God has designed the human family is that the child is oriented to the world most by his or her father. It's the father that establishes identity, that gives you a sense of right and wrong in the world, a sense of purpose, a sense of who you are. And when that relationship is broken, it messes with us. It damages us. And I know, and I know, some of you, and maybe more of you than I know, wear those scars. Look, I wear them. And they hurt. They hurt. And you spend a lifetime dealing with them. When I was writing the sermon and kind of reflecting on the whole idea of the fatherhood of God, the song Father of Mine by Everclear popped into my brain. Those of you who are child, children of the 90s know what song I'm talking about. And this song is about the lead singer, his dad abandoned him and how he dealt with that. And there's, there's these lines, there's these lyrics in that song that mess with me. He says, I'll never be safe, I'll never be sane, I'll always be weird inside, I'll always be lame. And I'm like, yeah, I feel that. (laughs) By God's grace, I feel it a lot less than I used to feel it. (laughs) But there are some wounds, some scars that cut so deep. And friends, we need to be honest about this. We need to recognize that those scars and those wounds that we carry from our earthly father, we can import them into a relationship with our heavenly father. They can keep us at a distance. They can keep us from being close to the father who rescues and redeems, keep us from being up close and personal and experiencing his grace and his power in our lives. And I don't want to pretend that that just gets fixed with the snap of a finger. It doesn't. But look, you need to acknowledge that. You need to be honest about that. 
You need to be aware of how those pain, that pain and that scar is keeping you from a deeper relationship with God. And here's the other thing. That pain, look, that pain that you feel, that, that pain that you experience, here's what it is. It's this ginormous flashing light saying things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It should be different This is not the way you are to relate to a father. This is not the way fatherhood was intended to be expressed in your life. And so in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that hurt, in the midst of that disappointment, let the father, the heavenly father, step in and restore and redeem what your earthly father broke. Like This is why it's good news that our father is a heavenly father. Yes, that means he is sovereignly in control and he is the authority. And we're going to talk about that next week. But here's what it also means. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's good. He doesn't damage and depart and abandon. No, he draws near, he rescues, he redeems, he heals, he restores. And friends, what your earthly father may have broken, your heavenly father wants to redeem. Your heavenly father comes to rescue you. And he says, yeah, in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of all of that disappointment, there, is, there are tears and there are struggles. He says, let my glory, let my love, let my grace, let my mercy, let my comfort envelop you and hold you and heal you and redeem and restore so that you can know the love of a father. Friends, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Lord's prayer is that we have a father who rescues. But we have a father who fixes and restores what has been broken, what we've broken ourselves and what has been broken in us by others. And so when we pray the Lord's prayer, here's what we're doing. We're taking a step towards that rescue and redemption We're saying, God, I cannot fix what's broken in me and what's broken in the world, and I need you to do it. I need you, Father. I need your love. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your power. And when we do that, he is all the more willing to step in and meet us, that we may know him. And so, church, as we start this year, Let us start with this truth in our ears. The God we pray to is our heavenly father who rescues. And in light of that truth, let us draw near to God. Let's drop the pride, self-sufficiency. Let's bring all of our angst, all of our fear, all of our disappointments, all of that failure of the past, let's let's bring that to his grace. And, And let's let this truth breathe life and hope into our prayers. And let us run to our Father to experience his mercy and grace. And if you don't know really where to start, let me just encourage you here. Start simply by saying, my Father in heaven, my Father in heaven. And then let that truth compel you to just spill your soul. (laughs) Be honest be vulnerable. You don't need to vet all of that. You don't need to sort all of that. You don't need to clean it up and make it appropriate. No, God's grace meets you in the mess. Just be honest. (laughs) Just bring that to your father. 
And let his grace, let his mercy, let his power, let his redemption, and let his rescue meet you in that. And church, if we commit that both personally and as a church together, then we're going to experience our Father in rich and deep and new ways, and that's going to change us. That's going to change you individually, and it's going to change us as a church. And so with that promise in mind, let's commit, let's commit to praying as Jesus taught. Let's pray now together.